From McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth, and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to another episode of The Venture. For our 13th episode, I'm excited to share a conversation with Jacob Angela, CEO of Food Panda APAC, the leading food and grocery delivery platform in Asia. You'll hear Jacob tell us about how Food Panda, under Delivery Hero, grew into a 30 billion market cap company, their new challenges in the face of COVID-19, and the culture of rockstar fast execution that helped them adapt in the early days to constant change. We also discuss how opening new markets in Asia can sometimes feel like starting from zero for many startups and how Food Panda approaches a launch campaign in strategic cities. Jacob, thanks for joining us this morning. Food Panda and Delivery Heroes, such large organizations now, but there were some initial growing pains and problems to solve when you first joined. Tell us how you got involved and what were some of those initial problems? Food Panda was founded roughly nine years ago, and I joined shortly after. And um, of course, it has been quite an incredible journey. And as you pointed out, we started as a very small company and food delivery back then was not really a hot topic. There was not much general interest by the media. There was not much money flowing into this industry. And we really had to do a lot of groundwork, kind of educating potential investors, but also educating business partners, like why somebody on this planet would actually like to order food online. And we encountered a lot of confusion around that, actually, funny enough. And so, yeah, in those early days, it was really a lot of groundwork, especially here in uh, Singapore, which is actually our first market. We went around, even I myself went around, you know, knocking on doors of different restaurants and signed them up. And so even today, by the way, it's really a one-by-one process. And then we signed some restaurants up, which were interested. They were kind of interested in technology. But of course, what we were missing were um, the really, really big brands like uh, McDonald's, Burger King. Pizza Hut and so on. And it was really challenging back then because those bigger companies, they didn't really see food online ordering for food be a thing. They also didn't really see the need for us. So knocking on doors, you know, there's sort of advice for startups to do things that don't scale initially. And I would imagine knocking on doors for you was, you're not doing that perhaps today, but that must have been very formative to have gone through that experience when you started. We do this much less today, but this aspect um, in our industry around signing restaurants kind of one by one. But in the meantime, we found scalable solutions for those non-scalable processes indeed. But in the early days, restaurant acquisition wasn't supported with technology at all. It was a very, very manual process. And then you just have to put the work in. I would imagine merchants, like you said, consumers were kind of new to this. Merchants were new to this whole industry and restaurants, you know, merchants, when you started to sign them up and they started to onboard and they got through month one, month two, month three, were there moments where you were like, okay, the data showing us or just stories we're hearing from merchants are extremely positive? Like, when did you feel you had sort of that customer product fit? For the first couple of years, I think merchants mainly signed up because they were kind of interested in technology or like young restaurant owner, a bit innovative and so on. And for them, to be honest, in the first couple of years, Food Panda wasn't really a very sizable business line. They did probably 150 transactions a day in their outlet and then adding maybe another three or five with Food Panda, right? It's kind of like a nice to have. 
but it doesn't move the needle for them. But for us, I think there were many making moments, but one of the making moments was definitely when we first started to break in into the, the bigger brands. Yeah? And here in Singapore, I still recall that the first bigger brand who really took a leap of faith with us, basically, and kind of, okay, we give you guys a chance, was actually Burger King, which we started with one outlet as a test and so on. And so they really gave us a shot. And then with them, we also saw that almost from day one, we picked up very, very decent orders, decent business volume, and then they expanded very quickly to more outlets. And then the interesting thing what happened is it took us incredibly much effort to sign this one brand, probably like 20 meetings or something or 30 meetings over like a, a one and a half years time, probably. But then once we had this one a flagship brand, so to say, on the platform, all the other bigger brands, they kind of were looking at Foodpanda all of a sudden. And then they were like, okay, are we missing out here something? And then from there on, I think progress came then quite quick on the restaurant acquisition side. So for Burger King, it took 20 plus meetings, more than a year to get them on. And then what happened when you did onboard them, they started using the platform. Any insights or stories where you knew that you had to retain them? The expectations were quite moderate, I would say, when they onboarded um, with us. But then after a couple of weeks, we were starting to get a bit more active. And they were just telling us, this is really interesting. We are now live with one outlet. Can we maybe onboard another 10 in two weeks' time? And so there we really understood, okay, like the revenues we provide to them is actually relevant for them. From then, basically the word spread and then things started to move much, much quicker. There's also product customer fit, right? Before you decide how to scale it, you know, first of all, does your service or product solve the problem? And it seems like Burger King, you kind of won them over once you were hitting these moderate targets that they had for you. What's interesting, if you would have looked at Food Panda or the whole industry in in 2014, and you would kind of analyze for product market fit, right? Probably the analysis would have told you that's not a fitting product and the market doesn't make sense. And then even years later, it would have been still a bit iffy. I think the first problem was while you maybe have the right product, you do need the right content on a marketplace, which is top brands, you know, the loved restaurants around the corner. And it turns out for food delivery, actually the depths of restaurants you need. It's not only 10, it's not only 20, right? It's really hundreds and thousands. So you need a lot. So that was the first challenge. The other challenge, which kept us away a long time from this industry really taking off was service experience. When we started out, delivery times were around, you know, 60 to 90 minutes. The restaurants actually mainly did the delivery themselves, which sometimes worked well, sometimes it didn't. So it was very inconsistent. And back then, if you would look at, you know, is this a good product market fit? You would have also said, look, people just don't want delivery in 90 minutes. And that's a niche service. Maybe you do this once a quarter if you have like a birthday party or something like this. And so only, to be honest, over like a longer period of time, we're able from a technology standpoint to actually create this very holistic product market fit, which we have today. And that also really propelled the business growth over the last couple of years. You're saying that it can take time to get to that predictable revenue and to focus on the experience, the journey, getting your content right, as you're saying, or for Food Panda, the number of and quality of restaurants onto the platform. Yeah, exactly. I think it's always important to reevaluate your business, especially your, your new ventures, considering you're like a bigger MNC or so and you're launching different streams. 
it's always, of course, important to keep a close eye on it and reevaluate, does this business make sense? And then, of course, cut your losses fast if you have to. But at the same time, I think often it also needs a little bit of a vision behind that. And even if the numbers don't make sense today, if somebody believes a bit further into that, yeah, has a bit of a more deeper belief in it and doesn't look only at the numbers today, but has a bit of more imagination where those numbers could lead to, then I think that's also very important because I do think a lot of good ideas sometimes get killed too early. Yeah, this is a key topic, right? Because incumbents, large MNCs, sometimes don't even look at unit economics. They're just looking at P&L. You're not going to be like cash flow positive on month three or month four. You're in this beginning stage and you're looking for product customer fit. You might be looking at things like month over month user growth or month over month restaurant onboarding. So as long as that part's growing and you're onboarding new merchants, onboarding new customers, then you can get into, okay, is the business profitable or do we have predictable unit economics? I would agree with that. There's something very important when looking at, at very early startups or business lines and the P&L still looks terrible. Like, how do you evaluate if this is a good business or not? One thing here really important is that you don't look about so much into absolute numbers, but you more look into progress. While, you know, the, the, the KPIs still don't look as good as they need to be, but are they moving slowly but surely into the right direction? One metric we started to look very, very early on was customer reorder rate. Like, if a customer orders this month, how much is the chance he's ordering next month again? In the very early days, this was extremely low. But I don't even want to disclose how low it was in uh, 2014. <laughs> <laughs> but over the many years, we gradually moved it up to a higher than you would um, see from an e-commerce um, standard basis. And so we were able to move this up um, kind of months on months, year on year, very, very consistently. That's a great example of a number and tracking progress on that number. What typically happens is a startup or the incumbent, when they launch something new, they measure things just like registrations or subscribers but not something a few layers deep about measuring is the customer happy with the service, yeah. like reorder rate. Yeah. Outside of numbers, let's talk a little bit about culture. Share with us a little bit about how you've built up the culture and a few stories on how you've been able to do that from Singapore. So the Food Panda business model is quite interesting in that regard that on the one hand, it's a 100% technology play. You have all those technology aspects like, um, you know, conversion on the website, online marketing, machine learning models. But at the same time, it's also a very, very heavy brick and mortar business with, as we said before, hundreds of thousands of restaurants, hundreds of thousands of riders. And between those different parties, a lot of things can go right and can go wrong. Mm -hmm. Very early on, it was very clear to us that Despite all the technological efforts, it's a very heavy operational execution business model. And so for us, it was very important, this kind of yeah, rockstar speed execution. And I think this is really important for a lot of startups to execute fast. Companies, they often say they want to execute fast, but they are not 100% willing to buy into that because every strategy you choose, every direction you go always has a trade-off. And so Rockstar execution, of course, comes on the trade-off on the back of excellence, perfectionism, fully thought through solutions and so on. And of course, now as Foodpanda being a bigger company today, we change a lot in those aspects, excellence and so on become much more important for us. But particularly in the early days, for us, it was all about speed. 
How did you enable that? I mean, I think everyone talks about speed being important, but what were some of the methods or, or the ways you enabled speed in those days? If you have an early stage startup, it is fundamentally, it's a small company. And so what people I think, yeah, under or overestimate, I don't know, is how do you create a culture and a mindset in an early stage startup? What you do for a big MNC is, of course, you have a very structured process, you build a vision, values, and then you put those values in every meeting room, you're included in your performance review framework and all of those things, which for big MNCs are super important and for bigger companies. But if you're an early stage startup, it's really about honestly getting the right-minded senior leaders into the organization, really getting them hooked on the right idea, on the right approach. And then because the company is still so small, just by them, you know, living it as an example for everybody else in the company really enables that. So I really would not underestimate for, you know, if a bigger company incubates a startup, for example, I really underestimate like the cultural mindset of the first couple of people you hire. The other thing I believe which really helps to put startups on overdrive is to hire correctly. And with correctly, I mean, what many companies do is when they hire people, especially if it's a startup and there's a lot of money behind it already, they do want to play it extremely safe. And so for, let's say, I don't know, like a head of sales, they hire somebody who did head of sales since like 25 years. And while you have a sales team of 10 people, they hire somebody who had already a sales team of 80 people in the past. That sounds great on paper, right? Because obviously this guy is excellent in what he's doing. So it doesn't really help you to move your company to rockstar speed. I think what can work much, much better is that you hire somebody who's tremendously more junior, but you see a lot of potential in that person. If you hire him as a, in this example, head of sales, the role will be a complete stretch for him, but he has the right mindset. He will take it up as a challenge and somehow will make it work. Maybe a lot of things will break on the way, but he will be very stretched and therefore more able to execute towards speed. Yeah, they're a bit hungrier, perhaps, to prove themselves. If you want to kind of set up the perfect system and the perfect processes, then this person would be completely a terrible choice. But if you're optimizing execution speed, it's important to take those chances. If you talk about like, you know, bigger companies incubating startups, that's where often those incubations go wrong, where they take on the people side very safe choices, also move a lot of, you know, very senior seasoned people from the headquarter organization into that incubator and so on, where they start with a lot of experience, but not with a lot of hunger and execution drive. The difference between hiring those first few key hires based on their CV versus the potential, as you said, you might see in someone. And it becomes very different over time. Looking at Food Panda, what I'm just describing was holding very much true for Food Panda in the first couple of years. But nowadays, obviously, with Hootpanda being a, a very sizable organization with you know thousands of employees across the 12 countries, so all those aspects I just described shifted or are shifting, of course, much more towards structure, stability, planning, etc. So it's really finding where is this company at at this point in time. Yeah, I'm sure it's evolving. Any principles you're following to maintain that speed despite being a larger organization now? Execution speed is always tied very closely to decision speed. And often if you have fast decision-making speed, it also translates then into faster execution. 
And so at Food Panda, what culturally was a creating moment almost was that at one point we, we reached some relevant size, but then we operated in back then eight markets and those eight markets were extremely different. We had a Bangladesh, a Singapore, a Taiwan, like you can imagine, couldn't be more different. And so we asked our question, okay, how can we manage this? And how can we be successful in a Bangladesh and successful in a Singapore with one headquarter? We really pushed the decision-making and the strategy downwards in the organization, from the regional headquarter into the country organizations. But then we saw this working very well. And then we actually did this across all aspects of the company, where we always try to have the decision-making as closely connected or as closely organization-wise to the execution part. And with that, we are able to make decisions much faster, which then also leads to much faster execution. The scope of those decisions, are they decisions around budgeting, customer journeys, standard operating procedures? You know, if I'm a salesperson in Thailand, I have the freedom to do lots of things. It depends, of course, on the decision. If you have a decision and it, um, if it goes wrong, it costs you, you know, 50 million US dollars. Obviously, that cannot be done by a single person and on a very junior level. But I think every decision has kind of like an average place in the organization, right? Where it's normally at on, in terms of hierarchy. And then some organizations who are slow moving have it probably a couple layers higher. And some organizations who are fast moving have it a couple layers lower in the organization. And we always try for every kind of decision there is. We always try to have it at the lower end. And of course, it comes with trade-offs. If you have it on the higher end, you have a bit more thorough decision-making. You do significantly less mistakes, probably. But you also simply do much, much less decisions, and the decisions take much, much, much longer. And also, if you do the decisions on a higher level, maybe they tie slightly better with the company strategy. But if you do it on a lower level, they tie better to the exact needs you have in that specific market or in that specific function. For us or, and for myself, it worked really well to move decisions as slow as possible in the organization to really gain the speed. On paper, you would say it's probably higher quality if you move it upwards because, you know, the CEO is the best to decide. But to be honest, more often than not, the decision-making quality actually is at least equally good if you have it on lower levels. Yeah, the way I heard uh, another CEO describe is, you know, fast makes good before good makes fast, right? Exactly. So, And that's the whole thing, right? I mean, I'd rather have a very fast decision, which gets executed in lightning speed. And then two weeks later, we find out, okay, it was complete nonsense and doesn't work at all, rather than simmering three months over the same decision and then deciding not to do anything. I would imagine things have changed a bit because of COVID-19. And take us a little bit through how you were able to manage this sort of central versus local empowerment or execution with COVID-19. Yeah, COVID-19 was an interesting one or is an interesting one. Very challenging for the whole planet and for all companies. Food Panda is no exception to that. Definitely, we didn't get out on the worst end of it. But also for us, it was a crazy busy time and huge amounts of challenges. And so when COVID hit, we had very diverse situations in all those different countries with very different um, reactions from the regulators. What we see a lot, especially in the tech industry, is that those global headquarters churned out those global guidelines, kind of, hey, across all our offices around the world, on Monday, we work from home. 
because COVID is serious and everybody needs to stay safe. And this sounds very good on paper, but we believe it really didn't fit the needs of many, many countries we are in. And so here this localized decision-making comes into play again, where the countries from the get-go anyways were very empowered to make decisions by themselves. And so without myself and the regional headquarter guiding or interfering actually so much, all those different countries and also different cities in the countries even made very different decisions on how to react to COVID from a team perspective, from a business perspective, and so on. And I think with that, we really found a good reaction for all those different markets. Only in the second step, uh, myself and my regional team, we were, you know, sitting around the table problem solving and then asking ourselves the question, how can we support the countries in a structured way from the regional team side? A lot of points then came back to technology, which we do run in a centralized fashion and um, where then we decided, for example, to churn out uh, like a no contact delivery feature where we, you know, diverted the complete roadmap and churned this out within one and a half weeks and took it live in all the countries. A bit more strategically, we were anyways somewhat in the process to launch our grocery business. And so we decided regionally to put this on overdrive and launch groceries and our Pandamart business across all those countries even faster than we were originally planning. So for contactless delivery from ideation to deployment on the platform, it was, it was only a few weeks. It was a week and a half. That's incredible speed. From first discussions in the leadership team to go live first market, I think it was below two weeks. The teams did also an amazing, amazing job to just turn this out as fast as possible. I think it was a nice success. And I think it really came down to A, just making the decision very fast. Um, but then also second, I mean, we also brutally despect the feature. So we really created a very simple functional feature, which, you know, served the needs of the market at that point in time and therefore could ship it very fast. Take us into one of those meetings when I'm sure it can get uh, emotional on what you decide to de-scope if people are excited of, of certain things over others. You know, how do you tie break uh, sprint planning or product meeting? Is it top down or, or voting? <laughs> In general, we always we try to avoid being top down, of course. I mean, the teams were excited because the product and tech teams, they knew COVID is something serious. The countries are struggling with it. And they were just excited that we could find like a very quick thing where the product and tech team could actually support the country teams a lot. And so it was really like uh, all hands on deck. I mean, I think everybody knew from the get-go that this will be a quick fix and after the fact will be some cleanup needed. And um, as long as I think you're kind of committed to clean it up later, then I think most people are quickly aligned. You recently launched in Japan. What we're finding across lots of organizations right now is there's this balancing that's required between awareness and acquisition branding versus performance marketing. When you decide to launch a new market, how do you typically balance these two things? For the case of Japan, I mean, we knew that A, we want to make progress very quickly because there are or were other companies where, which were also in launch preparations and so on. So it was really like a race to the finish line. At the same time, we also knew it will be a longer race because there's already a sizable player in Japan. And so it will take some time to catch up with that one. 
So yes, we want to move very fast, but also we have a long way to go. So quite complicated situation, actually. Talking about this kind of trade-off between yeah, awareness or branding versus you know direct impact marketing, we definitely went very, very early with, with awareness marketing. I mean, basically what we did is whatever kind of our Excel models and optimizing kind of considerations split out in terms of what split to take in terms of marketing. We just topped it up quite a bit on the branding side. A, no analytical model gives you the full truth, especially on aspects like branding and awareness. And we just wanted to launch the market also a little bit with a splash and really build our presence there and also build those yeah, hard to quantify very long-term benefits of branding and awareness as early as possible. And so what we did is we signed up one of the most expensive influencers very early on. And, you know, if you don't have many restaurants yet, you don't have much geographic coverage, whatever, you know, influencer marketing you do, it doesn't really convert in orders, right? Because you simply don't have the coverage yet. So we signed up tier one influencer super, super early, right in the beginning, actually, for the launch. We also went very early in out-of-home TV marketing and so on. And so far, so good. We were quite happy with the results, actually. Fun fact, for example, is so we, we actually launched outside of Tokyo first. We launched 10 cities across the various um, Japanese islands first. After five months or so, we launched Tokyo. But even before launch in Tokyo, we had higher brand awareness than some of the food delivery players who are present already in Tokyo because the high investment in awareness early, early on. And then the great thing was once we launched Tokyo, it was a bit like, yeah, okay, finally, you guys are here. I keep hearing about you guys. And so um, the money was not completely wasted. It really helped us to kind of have a good launch right from the get-go. Tell me a little bit more on the type of influencer. Was this person a social media influencer or a celebrity? Yeah, so it was really one of the widely known celebrities. Her name is Naomi Wanatabe. She's quite prominent now also in the rest of Asia, actually. And I think she just had a very good brand fit with us. She's very funny, first and foremost, and um, also quite, quite quirky. And on top of that, when we analyzed the Japanese food delivery market, one thing which stuck out for us was that it was very much like this traditional food delivery marketing, very much on kind of um, standard attributes like speed, like assortment, price, which all players do to try to introduce a bit of a more emotional component rather than strict attributes. And so, so for us, she was really a perfect fit because it's easy to connect to her. I think that was one of the, the criteria we had. What about attribution, right? Have you found other ways to drive attribution? We are spending, you know, significant money in, in awareness marketing. And as we all know, right, fundamentally, that type of marketing is, is hard to track. I mean, we do really undergo all efforts we can to make the non-trackable trackable, right? Probably the biggest tool we use is really recurring top of mind surveys with rather sizable panels where we measure our top of mind performance, our performance across different attributes like emotional attachment versus how they perceive speed, how price and so on. Then on top of that, for TV, things are actually in the meantime quite traceable and trackable. So we do see quite good correlations also there for short and long term. And last but not least, also what we sometimes do, which is a bit more expensive or more has a bit of a more opportunity cost. As we're operating in a lot of cities, play around with different marketing strategies a lot across different cities. And so 
we might do, for example, we run a TV campaign in five cities and then we exclude one city and we kind of, um, with a bit of more, um, you know, data science behind, get the delta out of it, long term and short term. On your last point, we're seeing a trend towards that where trying to measure awareness type campaigns, whether it's offline or online, by turning it on in a few strategic locations, turning it off in one location, and then measuring the incrementality of the, between those two locations to measure effectiveness. It never really solves for what is the long-term impact, right? What is the impact of, I'm doing heavy TV today, what is the impact of this in one year from now, right? That is just like the crux of the problem. You can, of course, kind of fix it to some extent, but then only one year later, when you have the data, which then doesn't really help you much because everything changed in the meantime. A great tool is on a macro level to track um, top of mind performance. If you see you're trending slowly but surely in the right direction, you kind of know you're doing something right. For listeners out there, especially for incumbents that are trying to launch and break into a competitive space like Japan was for you, would the split between awareness and acquisition be 50-50, 60 <laughs> on awareness? Those are a little bit the food delivery trade secrets. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but also, to be fair, I think it's very business model specific. If you, I don't know, you run a property marketplace, I think this might be very different than, than a food delivery business. Whenever we went yeah, a bit heavier on brand and awareness marketing, I hardly had a situation where we regretted that. Vice versa, if you optimize too much towards um, short-term impact and ditch too much of your marketing just in, in conversion and chasing the next order or the next transaction, then there is a risk you're missing out on something. If we just focus on acquisition tactics and we don't find the, those emotional hooks with the yeah. customer and the brand, then the dollars you spend on marketing is just competing with other clicks and your competitors. Whereas the awareness campaign, the content strategy, the emotion around it is what sometimes can build that moat around your brand. Especially for kind of early stage startups, I think if you don't build an emotional brand from the get-go and you focus from day one already on measurable, tangible attributes, I do think it's quite difficult to move away from that at a later stage. Well, Jacob, thanks for sharing about your early days creating the the speed and this rockstar fast execution. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Now comes the segment where we invite experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. And today I'm joined by Dilip Mistry, a partner and venture builder with McKinsey based in Asia. Dilip is also a leader at McKinsey Digital Labs and co-leads our business building practice lead by McKinsey. Hey Dilip, thanks for joining us. Hey, Andrew, good to be here. So Jacob opens up in this interview a bit on uh, the topic of speed, and we talk about rockstar fast execution. What are some of your thoughts from your experience on how incumbents specifically can create this type of speed? Yeah, speed is a really important topic, and I think you've got to have the right speed at the right time. I think Jacob talked about the fact that it took him a little bit of a while to get kind of product customer fit and even took a while to kind of do that big deal with Burger King, if I remember when he said it was something like 12 to 24 months. But the point I'm trying to make is in the early days, it might take a while just to figure this out. But once you figure out the, the formula to win, once you figure out the business model, you do need to move fast. And to actually move fast, I feel a lot of it comes down to leadership style. The leadership has to role model pushing decision-making down, which is what Jacob talked about. The leadership has to role model that some of these risks 
can actually be borne by people, you know, closer to the field, so to speak. And then, you know, a healthy dose of kind of paranoia as well, that if we're not moving fast enough, the competition is going to come and take over. So I think the leadership needs to kind of role model the culture that you want so that fast decision can actually take place. And there's some trade-off there as well, right? When you push down decision-making to the, the frontline team, they might make sometimes the, the, the wrong decision or not the, the most optimal decision, but you get speed instead of perfect. And I think that was one of the key things. That, that's right. I mean, there is a trade-off, but you also get you know, multiple experiments happening. And as long as you've created a culture, let's learn from these experiments and let's make sure we've got a feedback loop so that you know everyone can learn from them then I think you can move much, much, much faster, you know? And I think, look, some of these ideas do come from people which are closer to the ground. And, and certainly in the years that I've been helping uh, corporates build new businesses, some of the best ideas come from people that are closest to the customer. They'll come out with, you know, ways to reduce processes. And you've also got people on the front lines playing with different tools as well, you know? So we all use tools such as Slack or Jira, and a lot of these didn't come from, you know, corporate headquarters. They come from people at the coalface, so to speak, and they come up with these ideas. So create a culture where people closest to the customer, closest to the engineering can come up with ideas and then, and then run with them. Yeah, a culture that will accept those ideas. That's a good segue to Jacob talks about how they were able to adapt to COVID-19 by quickly creating a contactless delivery. And they were able to pull it off in a few weeks, which which shows that they have a sort of product culture as well, where they can quickly adapt, uh, ship new code, get things into production. We find a lot for incumbents that are working on legacy systems and different type of speed that it's it's hard to create this product culture. What can you share for incumbents that are listening right now that hear all these great things about how startups move fast, but what are some specific ways they can think about it? One of the things people have this notion that startups are kind of working 24 by 7 and just cranking the code. The reality is they're making smart decisions. And one of the smart decisions they do make is uh, they buy before they build. A lot of times there's a lot of software available in various kind of code repositories. And sometimes quicker just to buy a piece of software. Suddenly if it's a piece of software that doesn't differentiate your experience to just buy that. Um, use it and get it out to market. You, you may well decide to build some of it on your own in a future releases, but buy before you build is a key philosophy, which I would encourage many corporate business builders to, to think about. So that's number one. Uh, number two, when you want to get stuff out to market, you might actually create a bit of technical debt and accept that you want to get something out, you want to test it, and you might need to hold off kind of optimization and maybe cleaning up some of the, some aspects of your software later, but that's okay as long as you accept that there's technical debt. And what is what is technical debt for people that may not be familiar with that term? Oh, technical debt is basically when you're actually busy building software. There are things which you're doing. Let, let's call them, you know, shortcuts which you're having to take sometimes to build software quickly. What that means is that you, <laughs> there are things which need to be, let's say, straightened out in a future version. So let me, let me give an example. You might be writing a, an algorithm to do a particular calculation. And that algorithm might be actually being executed in a long-winded way, but it's allowed you to release to market very quickly. If you want to optimize that algorithm, the algorithm could be written a lot better, a lot more smarter, but you might hold off on that for a future release because you just wanted to get the formula out there as opposed to having the perfect algorithm. So 
you just have to accept that. And I suppose the final thing I would think about is you don't have to do everything yourself. A lot of interesting software companies actually are able to create platforms and encourage you know, communities to build on top of what you've done. And so that, if you can do that early on in your venture building experience where you make it easy and you, know, you publish an API, you publish a documentation, and you can actually encourage the community to build on your behalf, you can actually extend effectively what is your development team. So there's many creative ways in which you can get stuff out faster and not have to do everything yourself. Yeah, you don't you don't need to put sometimes the pressure on yourselves to build everything from scratch to your point on, on buying uh, versus build. And then I like what you're saying about developer community. If you build something that the ecosystem can leverage, whether it's data through API or access to system uh, functionality somehow, that's another way to, to grow a product versus just the consumer side of it, the, you know, make it open enough where the developer community can interact and that can help expand your product team as well. Yeah, if you look at all the famous products, all of them get to a stage where they start talking about this word platform. But I actually think even before you, you've become a platform, if you do a good job in documentation, getting your API correct, making sure the hooks are well-defined, you know, people will, will build on top of what you're doing because you know, we all want to get to a, to a better place. So it's an interesting approach which uh, corporate venture builders can also take as well. So that's one way to grow and expand sort of the, the, the product culture. And then what, what about this third topic we spoke about with Jacob on branding versus performance marketing? There's a lot right now of, I would say, a focus on performance marketing, you know, understanding your click-through rate, your conversion rates from all the different platforms out there, Facebook, Google, TikTok now. And then there seems to be almost a over-index towards performance marketing. And now we're seeing sort of a shift back to branding where... The last thing I read was advertising on traditional media starting to go up because it's just less expensive now uh, than it used to be. And what do you think about that? Where do you fall on this this point of view uh, on this topic around branding versus performance marketing? Look, I'm big on data and I'm, I'm big on accountability. So I'm a big fan of performance marketing. And at the same time, there is a need for brand marketing. and Maybe the pendulum has swung a little bit too far in the direction of performance marketing. But the brand is something which an incumbent, a corporate already has. And, and that's a huge uh, unfair advantage vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, startups in that space. So they should definitely use that. And, and you know, I mean, it, there's lots of theories around what marketing is. But I think the thing about an incumbent is often there's trust, you know, from a large entity. And I think if you can, you know, play on that trust aspect of a brand, that's a huge differentiator vis-a-vis -a, -vis a startup, which may or may not be around for long. So you should play to that. Why not? It's your absolute strength. So when I speak to my corporate clients, corporate venture building is a never-ending experiment, constantly iterating and constantly trying to make use of the resources you have. And if you have that mindset, constantly experimenting, constantly learning, constantly adapting, you'll be successful in the long run. Hey, Dilla, thanks for joining. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Andrew. You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.